We're a little way down the line with this podcast series and it occurs to me that the one thing we haven't yet done is dig into exactly what's meant by climate psychology. I understand climate, I understand psychology to a degree, um, but what does it actually mean when you put those two words together? My trusty co-host in this series is Caroline Hickman of the Climate Psychology Alliance. And for this episode, she also invited along a colleague of hers from the CPA, um, a founder member, in fact, called Paul Hoggett. Now, Paul has um, recently edited a book of collected essays from various people, which is called Climate Psychology on Indifference to Disaster. And he's also an exponent of a technique, if that's the right word, called deep listening. So we covered all that in this chat, but started first by asking Paul how he got into psychology in the first place. And interestingly, that went hand in hand with a parallel life in politics. Here's Paul. I've been involved off and on in politics since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved in psychotherapy off and on since the 1970s. And I um, have always been really interested in how these two things seem to run in parallel worlds, but very rarely intersect. Whereas for me, it seemed absolutely obvious how these things intersected. Mm. So, um, and the way in which, I suppose, one way in which it people used to think about that was through that slogan the personal is the political yeah that somehow or other those big political issues in the outside world um, did get in and formed who we are and who and our internal world and got into our feelings and our our, and, and so on and so forth but I always thought there was more to it than that and um I um, I actually wrote a book in 1992. It's the best book I've ever written because it wasn't an academic yet. book. It wasn't an academic yet. <laughs> um, it was called Partisans in an Uncertain World. And in that book, I said, yes, the personal is political, but the political is also personal. Right. You know, and that's crucial. Yeah. Um, and at that time, I suppose I was thinking primarily about the way in which, in my experience of politics and being in political groups and organisations, what went on in the life of those organisations yeah. and some of the kind of bizarre and irrational kinds of things that went on. For example, internal conflicts mm-hmm. um, couldn't be understood unless you had the mind of a kind of psychologist, psychotherapist, mm-hmm. to understand, for example, what one would call them narcissism of minor differences. So that's straight out of the life of Brian. Do you remember that extract in the life of Brian where they're sat at some kind of um, gladiatorial contest in the stands and there's a dispute emerging between the um, Judean People's Front and the People's Front for the Liberation of Judea. (laughs) And that's about the narcissism of minor differences. You know, so this would be an example in my mind of what I mean by the political is also personal. In some sort of way, political life can't be understood separate from the passions, the defences, the unconscious processes that we as individuals bring. Except that the political is often a group of people and a group of people is very different to an individual. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And And a group of people just behaves takes on a whole different set of yeah. behaviours because it's a group. Absolutely. And so really for the first probably 30 years of my life trying to bring these two things together, 
I was primarily interested in group psychology and that's what I did. And that's how I made my living in a way is by being an expert on groups. Yeah? Um, but eventually I, I, I wanted to actually to also understand something about the individual because you can't understand the group without understanding the individual in more depth. So I did do a psychotherapy training and, um, and that really did immerse me in that one-to-one encounter, which um, is very similar in some ways, but very different from working with groups. Mm. Um, so, you know, both of those things, I think, are, are important that you, you know, maybe the group is, is what mediates between the personal and the political in mm. a way. It, it's the way in which those two things kind of interpenetrate through groups, organisations, institutions, families, stuff like that. Um, so, um, you know, traversing that kind of terrain between psychotherapy and politics over many, many years. And um, we eventually had an opportunity to set up um, during that period of time when universities still had the license to be creative, which I don't think they do so much nowadays, we had the opportunity to set up an interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary centre in which we brought together people from politics, sociology and the world of psychotherapy in what we called psychosocial studies. And strangely enough, a number of universities in Britain were doing exactly the same thing mm. at the same time. Mm. So we set up a network of universities interested mm. in psychosocial studies. And at first, uh, lots of the students I had coming to do postgraduate research were interested in things like um, youth work, community work, working around issues of race and class, those kinds of things mm. primarily. Mm. And I was becoming more and more interested in climate change. And then um, we started to find students coming in who were interested in doing work around climate change issues. And we um, began to um, develop new ways of doing qualitative research to investigate these kinds of issues, which were informed by psychotherapeutic mm. approaches to mm. listening, basically, deep listening. Okay. Um, um, which is a rather different approach to doing uh, research to conventional, more structured um, surveys or questionnaires or, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and anyway, cut a long story short, more and more of these students came in and one thing led to another and we started to run conferences and workshops around climate change and issues like that. And uh, one person who got very involved in that said to me eventually, look, we ought to start setting up a network of people in group psychology, psychotherapy, activists in transition groups and so on, um, who, who are, want to bring all this together. Mm. And so we started to do that about 10 years ago. And eventually that became the Climate Psychology Alliance. Alliance. And, yeah. that's, and how did you get involved in that then, Caroline? Mm. Were you in? I wasn't there at the beginning, no. Probably about sort of seven years ago, started attending conferences and talks and workshops. Um, I was teaching on a psychosocial studies degree at the University of East London, so I was already involved in the psychosocial mm. and then was interested in the climate psychology. 
But I'd been interested in the kind of eco-psychology before that. So for me, it was a really interesting move to move from the eco-psychology to the climate psychology. I, I wrote my psychotherapy dissertation 20-something years ago on uh, depression, but also sort of relationship with saltwater and shark finning and the, the, the sort of destruction of the self as well as the environment. So I know, horrible, but... Um, so yeah, so so for me, I got really. Uh, Paul was talking about the different research. For me, discovering that you could kind of apply the psychotherapy to the research was amazing for me to actually bring those two things together. Because I'd been a psychotherapist for twenty years, but only recently got interested in research. So suddenly, to use those psychotherapy skills there was great. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was enlightening. I mean, it just felt like liberation to be able to do that, to get that depth uh, instead of just sort of skating around on the surface and just recounting mm. kind of statistics or something, you know. Mm. I don't want to be rude about other people's research. That's cruel. But, you know, because I'll mm. take a pot shot at me at the end. Into it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that depth was just amazing. And I found that I was discovering things in the research then that I could never have imagined. Mm. So, and that's what... Yeah, I mean, psychosocial studies, when it was established, its primary focus was the to explore the lived experience of, for example, class. Yeah, um, and um, to do that, you had to really try and get inside someone's world who was maybe completely different to you. Yeah, so one of my colleagues. Mm. Um, wrote uh, a lot about a guy he was interviewing about class and ethnicity down in Plymouth, who he called Billy, pseudonym, mm. uh, who had been a boxer or weightlifter. He worked in the docks as a heavy lifter. Um, he was tattooed. Mm. In many ways, he looked like an archetypal white working class racist. Mm. And yet in conversation and exploring his lived experience of what it meant to be someone like him, you've got a much more complex uh, picture mm. than those simple kind of stereotypes that, that are easy to resort to. Yeah. So, you know, the focus on experience is key, and I think that's still absolutely key mm. in the Climate Psychology Alliance. What we're interested is in people's experience of uh, climate change even if it appears that they don't have any experience whatsoever, you know, mm -hmm. because they're completely disengaged from the issue. Um, so, um, and I was, I think, to begin with, you know, I was engaged, I was interested in an academic kind of way in climate issues and in the, in the environment from the early 19th on onwards. But I only became really interested and engaged in a different way uh, through experience, lived experience, um, when I was, I suppose, for me, the key moment was I got cancer. And in recovering from cancer, mm. I began to, um, in almost an unconscious process of looking out of my window, looking over all of East Bristol in November and December as I was off work, watching these depressions sweep in over the city, mm. becoming interested in the weather. Mm. And I found myself reading a book about the weather. And the last chapter in the book was about climate change. And I thought, ah, this is interesting. And suddenly, you know, um, 
like death, climate change became something very real mm. and rather a real experience rather than an abstract intellectual thing. Exactly. Mm. So something felt. <clears throat> something felt. So it's the emotional, isn't it? Is mm -hmm. it that comes in? So it's no longer just analysing and thinking and being cerebral. It's actually learning to understand how you feel and, and also giving um, validity to mm -hmm. that as as part you know it, of course it's part of us right yeah. I mean it's most of us mm -hmm. isn't it the way we are emotionally but then when we try and rationalise and explain anything in the world we all get bookish and think that we need to have sentences structured in the right mm -hmm. way yeah. mm -hmm. and to explain something which actually kind of takes us into a sort of narrower experience of it rather than exploring something and I think for me that psychosocial exploration was crucial Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So Paul, you mentioned this thing called deep listening mm. being a, being a, a part of of um climate psychology. Mm -hmm. And I know that because uh, I sort of work a lot with music and um and kind of uh, progressive musics, I suppose. And there is a deep listening movement which if anybody knows anything about Pauline Oliveros, oh, who mm. was an amazing um she died recently, but she was an amazing accordion player mm. and and her thing was to mm use essentially what people might hear as drones um, for hours and hours and hours uh, as a way of, um, I don't know, I, I always sort of feel it's a kind of way of um, being entranced or mm. some, somehow mm. being in, getting yourself into an other state. Mm. But, I, but what, what I have never thought of is, is why you would do that. You know, having got to that, why would, you know, then what do you do with it, mm. if you know what I mean? Mm. But um, it, does that correlate in any way to what you were calling deep listening in, in, th in therapy terms? Well, it might do. I'm not sure. I mean, what I had in mind was um, when I'm engaged with someone as a psychotherapist you know, and they're sat there opposite me or on occasions they might be on the couch in my room, um, what are you doing? What am I doing as a psychotherapist? Yeah, okay, well... I'm listening to their words, what they're saying, you know, what's been going on in the last week or the last day or whatever it might be. Um, but kind of more importantly than that, um, I'm listening to the music of the session mm -hmm. rather than the, just the words, if you see what I mean. Um, I'm listening to um, if they're silent yeah, for a long period of time. What kind of silence is this? Yeah, is this a frightened silence or is this a bored silence or, or what is it? Um, and if they start talking and they're talking very quickly, yeah, I'm trying to listen to the, is, are the words in, in tune with the music that's going on in the room or is there some kind of discordance going on there? Maybe they're talking really, really, really quickly because they're anxious in an underlying kind of way, yeah? So, crucially, I suppose, I think what you learn as a psychotherapist is to tune in to the music as well as to the words. Yeah? In other words, the not-so-obvious, the, uh, the less conscious, the less overt, um, and use your training. And that's really what a psychotherapy training is. A lot of it is about is training your capacity to tune in to the music in that kind of way 
Um, and that's an some... analytical tool for you, is it, to kind of reach a deeper understanding of this person that you were saying? Yeah. You know, because... what is it like to be this person? So, you, for example, you need to be fairly sure that what you're tuning into is their music and not your own. Right. Yeah. And to know that, you need to know yourself pretty well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so part of the training of being a psychotherapist is, is to have a very intensive psychotherapy yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, easily you can be, you know, the technical word is projecting your stuff into what the other person is bringing. Um, so, you know, that capacity to um, listen in that kind of way, not just to the words, but to people's gestures, to their silences, to their moods, to how they're dressed, um, all of those kinds of things is a kind of key part of what the method is all about. And that's also then brought in, been brought into psychosocial research. But it's also, I think, a crucial part of um, engaging people with climate around climate change issues. Mm-hmm. So we run um, started to run workshops called Taking the Heat Out of Talking About Climate Change. Um, in which we um, help people start to think about how do you have those ordinary everyday conversations with friends, families, colleagues uh, about these issues? Um, and, um, you know, what kind of approach do you need to use? And um, what I found is that many of the um, methods, if you like, and um, lessons that I've learned from being a psychotherapist are also really important in helping people have these kinds of difficult conversations because that's what you're doing as a psychotherapist, isn't it? You're actually engaging over a long period of time with in some quite difficult conversations with people who feel very ambivalent about change. They want desperately to change and they want desperately to say the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. And that makes for a difficult mm-hmm. kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. So bringing that into this arena mm. of climate change and talking about climate change is 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 something very valuable potentially mm. and and is it your job as a psychotherapist thinking about you with sitting there with one person mm-hmm. to listen or have a conversation it's to uh, do both yeah but have a conversation in which primarily um you're not saying a great deal <laughs> because, you know, th- they lead. You know, I always say that to someone who first comes to psychotherapy. Yeah. You lead, I follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they lead uh, and you follow. And part of your skill, as it is as a researcher, is to um, find ways of prompting them, f- reflecting things back to them uh, and so on, which can... Um, free them up when they get a bit stuck or... Um, so they're having a conversation with themselves. They're having in a the conversation end, the with the day, themselves sort of. in a certain sort of way. Or you're, uh, and what you're often witnessing is a conversation going on inside their head, but out loud, and then you're interjecting. So there's a three-way conversation. Yeah, There's, for example, there's uh, um, a rather... So there's someone on the one hand who feels very small um, and inadequate, yeah, and they're having this conversation with another part of themselves who's very demanding and perfectionist, yeah, 
um, and just sat there as a psychotherapist intervening in that kind of conversation between those two parts of the individual, mm. two, two different aspects of the self. Yeah? Um, because basically that conversation between the inadequate and, if you like, the perfectionist could go on endlessly. And that's part of why they're stuck. And you're trying to change it, mm. free mm-hmm. them up in some sort of way. Yeah. <clears throat> I like I like the idea of the parts that you just brought mm-hmm. in about the conversation between the parts and it's often well sometimes more than two isn't it as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. there can be multiple players <clears throat> involved in those debates that are going on for people um and they're not always internal to the person. Is that where the climate psychology kind of mm-hmm. comes in a bit mm-hmm. more? That there's the relationship between the self and the other, the self mm-hmm. and the environment. Mm-hmm. Well, crucially, I mean, another that's one of the things. Again, we often say to people is um, that it's important to understand that everybody comes to these issues in a way divided and in mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. One part of them. Uh, for example, take the issue of flying, you know, one part of them thinks, why can't I go flying? I'm entitled to it. I've worked hard all, all these years. You know, why can't I bugger off to Zurich for, mm. for a nice weekend and so on and so forth? And another part of them is saying, ooh, you know, um, what, think about that a little bit. What, 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 what are the implications of that? What was that you were just seeing on the television a few days ago, you know? Um, and that might be a healthy conscience, or it might be an unhealthy conscience, sort of re- relating to them in a very punishing sort of way. Mm. Oh, here you go again, indulging yourself. You know, you ought to feel mm. crap about that and so on and so forth. So we approach, I think, all of these issues, particularly in terms of what we do, how we engage politically. Yeah? So that's how the political is personal. We approach all these issues from a point of view of these internal conflicts, mm-hmm. I think. And taking the heat out of the conversation, was that the title of your workshop Mm. that you run? You've got a group of people obviously sitting there. So that's not necessarily asking somebody obviously to talk about themselves and have a conversation internally, but it's it's asking people to interact, isn't it? So is that, how does that work? How does this theory that you're saying Mm -hmm. apply to that? Well, well, the last, you know, um, the last group we worked with was um, an exile group um, who wanted... To, uh, who wanted to go through this workshop because they are all people who wanted to be able to engage more effectively with friends, f- family, colleagues and so on around these kinds of issues. So, um, so the typical workshop we'd run is I'd introduce them to some basic ideas about what do we mean by denial? What do we mean by I make a difference between hard denial and soft denial? Soft denial is what we all do. It's what we would call disavowal, technically. Yeah, so that's where um, we uh, there's a split occurs inside us between the thinking and feeling parts of us. So it's a bit like me originally. I was in disavowal 25 years ago. I knew all about climate change, but it was purely intellectual and unconnected to feeling. Yeah, so that's what disavowal does. It's it's a way of knowing but knowing in a way which doesn't disturb you. Yeah. yeah? yeah, yeah. So everything yeah. remains the same. A lot of people are like yeah. that, I think, Absolutely. with climate change. Yeah. Absolutely. It's central to our culture, I mm. think, really, about, mm. about climate change. Mm. And other things. And other really, things, Let's yeah. do the climate for now, Absolutely. but yeah. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, so I introduced them to some basic concepts about like disavowal, for example. And then um, um, we'll get people doing some stuff on their own, you know. Uh, so how do you do disavowal? Yeah. Um, and they pair up with someone they don't know in the room and they each spend, say, 10 minutes talking to each other about, OK, well, this is how I do it, you know, disavowal. Yeah. In um, behavioural terms. In behavioural yeah. terms. So they'll yeah. give an examples yeah. maybe from their own personal life yeah. about yeah. how they so split like, those two yeah. things. Yeah. Still driving the diesel car. Absolutely, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or still scoffing my steaks or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and then um, we move on from understanding some of the key ideas to some of the issues about having conversations and how you have a conversation about difficult issues uh, with people. And again, we get them working in pairs and small groups where typically we, we use the idea of dilemmas, you know, that we've just been talking about. We approach lots of these issues and we feel torn. We're in a dilemma about eating, our diet, our flying, whatever it might be. Um, so we ask them to think of a dilemma that they are aware of in their own lives around these issues and then to explore it with someone else. Um, and then to use that as an opportunity to try out new listening skills, deep listening skills together in the, as a pair. So, you know, there are a number of basic concepts that we introduce in deep listening skills, mm. uh, which I could tell you. Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. OK. So things like listening non-judgmentally with respect and compassion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Use open ended questions or simply use a reflecting back method of helping the conversation along. Uh, Notice how the person you're talking to uses metaphor, imagery and stories, you know, because they can often tell you much more than facts and information and, and so on. They can give you insights that are deeper in a way about people's experiences. Listen out for inconsistencies, silences and contradictions, mm -hmm. because they might be a way in which you can begin to... Um, it's a bit like um, we often talk about it's, it's the analogy is with um, judo. Yeah, it's no use going like that and mm. confronting people head on. Sure. You, but you have to find ways of coming in from the side. Mm. And sometimes if you can see an inconsistency or a contradiction in what someone is saying, that's a way of coming in from the side. Yeah, they're slightly off balance and then the conversation might move in a slightly different direction. Mm. So those are the kinds of things we do our skills, trying to get people to try out those kinds of mm. skills, yeah. Mm. Well, what, what, if anything, can we do with hard denial? Um, <clears throat> so you're well, talking about the climate deniers, the, the well, people who... It doesn't have to be as rigid or as extreme as climate deniers, but maybe just people who just cannot move or cannot hear you. I mean, yes, I think on a continuum, climate deniers are, are at one end of that spectrum. Um, but that could be, you know, there mm. they could be quite delusional, to be honest, if they're just not reading a newspaper. Um, so the, the scientific facts are now pretty clear. But then there's a level of denial where there's people who just refuse to even engage with what that means for them, or, or maybe invest these hopes in the government will do something. You know, somebody will save us. Do you know? What do we do with that, do you think, Paul? Um, well, I Sorry. think that all Big that question. is, is um, 
I sometimes refer to that as the internal propaganda. Okay. That goes in our minds. I mean, I still think of that sometimes. Do you? You know, uh, maybe, um, what's his name, Tesla, will finally come up with something that will solve all our problems for us or something like that. You know, that kind of make-believe is a part of, I think, the kind Uh, of internal propaganda we, we do all use when we're in disavowal. I think, for me, hard denial is either based on... Fear and terror, mm, yeah. Mm, um, yeah. Like, you know, um, when we talk about addictions and people in complete denial about their addictions, mm. it's because if they were to become aware, really aware of what their alcoholism was about, that would be so frightening for them and threatening to their sense of identity that they keep it out mm-hmm. in that very kind of hard kind of way. Mm-hmm. But I think the probably the one we're facing now, which is more difficult, mm. is based on what I'd call cynicism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at um, the fossil fuel interests and um, uh, some of the populists who support them, um, like Trump and, and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. I think it's fairly clear to my mind that they've got a purely cynical uh, they know what's going on. They know absolutely what's going they've on. They've known for decades. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they've known for decades. Yeah. Um, and yet they are so demoral, demoralised mm, without yeah, any yeah. kind of yeah. morality that um, uh-huh. in yeah. a purely cynical way they are carrying on. And I think there is something... Um, uh, deeply disturbing about that kind of um, antisocial personality... <laughs> Um, Winnicott, a psych- psychoanalyst, would, yeah. wrote a lot about what he called the antisocial personality. And he was primarily thinking of, you know, some of the work he did as a forensic uh, psychotherapist in those days, working with people in prisons, you know, and so on, who who were basically criminals. And in a way, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about mm. criminals. Mm. Unfortunately, they're very, very powerful criminals. So mm. I don't think you can change these people. Mm-hmm. Um, you've just got to fight them. Um, okay. But there is one other category, I think, that, that which is hard denial, um, <laughs> which is slightly more complex, um, which is people who never believed in climate change, yeah, mm-hmm. but have kind of entrenched themselves in that position now, even though they actually can see that all of their friends or many of their friends and many of their colleagues and relations are now shifting their view. But but it's so difficult for them to to change because they would have to swallow their pride in a certain sort of way and, and in a way say, oh, yeah, I was wrong, I suppose, mm, on mm, this. And mm. that's really difficult. I think we need to find ways. A sort of like reassurance and, and yeah, yeah, create say, a safe... Yeah. space for them yeah. to you know to say well you know okay you were wrong but it's not a bad thing you know we all we all get it wrong you know on all sorts of issues and we need again i suppose this is the thing about compassion we need to feel and be compassionate towards those kinds of individuals who are basically good-hearted and good-intentioned not like the cynics mm. yeah i've noticed that a <clears throat> lot of people I've been talking with who maybe did hold that position a few months ago are moving Mm. a lot. Mm. And I think it's been that sort of 
constant repetition of one piece of significant information after another, after another, after another. The IPCC report, the biodiversity report, the David Attenborough documentary. It's been repeated Mm -hmm. approaches. Mm -hmm. And I'm noticing everyone who I'm talking with. I'm sure there are people I'm not talking with who are still holding out. But everyone's kind of going, oh, yeah, it really is serious, isn't it? I'm not Mm -hmm. finding people... Mm -hmm. As resistant. Um, There's certainly been a seismic shift. Huge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely uh, In the huge. last few months, yeah. really. Yeah. Mm, which is encouraging. But, um, yeah. I think it's a really valid conversation. That, you know, how... I suppose we've been talking in the podcast, haven't we? How, how, we, how are we talking about... But how do we talk to people about... How do we bring it up? You know, because it's great if you've got a workshop and it's got a headline. Everybody mm. knows why they're turning up. But so often, in fact, we had mm. Sophia, didn't we, on the podcast series, um, talking, one of the, the youth climate strikers, talking about how she was sat on a train yeah. uh, and she was just put in a position. And, of course, you know, just with casual conversation, it, mm. it sort of crops up. Mm. But mm. it's actually a really important thing for us all to learn, to have in our tool bag things like mm. deep listening mm. so that when we're in these things we can think oh yeah that's going to help me here mm. um when it comes up but also to bring it up you know yeah. so often i find uh i mean in my sort of immediate family actually um it just doesn't really cu- it doesn't come up no we we all just totally skirt skirt around mm. it and i would like to be able to bring it up in a way that wasn't perceived as in that, in that sort of very intimate um, setting, um, sort of rocking the boat, confrontational. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's just have a lovely mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Y- you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I I'd do. like that tool in my tool bag too. You know, and it's I, I, incredibly tricky to do. And I mean, partly I think that's about timing. Um, and I think you have to wait until there's good moments to bring things up. Otherwise, you just kick off everybody's defences. And then they just label you and then you're, you know, it's hopeless. It's really difficult. So I think partly you've got to think about timing. I think you've also got to have a lightness of touch sometimes when it comes to families in that you just keep kind of dropping it in. I talk about flower bombing with people. You know, when you put lots of flower seeds into a piece of soil and throw it into the grass verge mm. as you go past and some of them will grow and some of them won't. And you just, so that's my kind of mm-hmm. approach. So I mm. throw this stuff out there, but keep moving, mm. you know, <laughs> And some of those will take flower, some of those will take root, some of those will grow, and some of them won't. But over time, that gives people the space to kind of have mm-hmm. that shift mm-hmm. in themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're kind of standing there demanding that they change their mm-hmm. position, mm-hmm. it's probably not yeah. going to happen. No, no, no. I think one what of the think, best Bob? ways of mm. generating those kinds of conversations is by modelling things, Yeah. So, um, modeling or muddling? Mo- model. Modeling. Okay, yeah. that's better. <laughs> so, <laughs> not muddling. <laughs> so, um, you know, people are, are basically curious. So, um, you've talked about it as soon as I arrived, but I got an electric car about two and a half months ago now. Yeah. The number of conversations that mm. has actually provoked mm. around right. yep. issues that like climate change. Yep. Um, and pollution in big cities, but primarily about climate change and so on. Is, is and I, I don't have to initiate the conversations. No. That's the interesting no. thing. People, because you're modelling something, yeah. People say, oh, that's interesting, and they yeah. start talking to you about that's it. That's that you know? quote, isn't it? Be the change you want to see. Be the see. change you want Ooh, to you said see. That. Yeah, yeah. 
it's yeah. true, isn't it? Yeah. So if you, yes, like <clears throat> you say, then those conversations come mm. up naturally. Mm. Mm. We haven't got electric cars, have we, Caroline? So we're both sitting here. <laughs> no. But, no. Well, for example, no. you know, um, modelling all sorts of other ways, isn't there? <laughs> Taking the train when you go to Europe, yeah. for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, um, putting solar panels on your roof, changing who you bank with or who you, you know, um, delivers your electricity for you. I mean, how you eat. I mean, there are countless ways. Yeah. And often, they you know, open up conversations. They open up conversations. Yeah, because yeah. people are curious. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah no, or really or they point. might even not open up conversations explicitly, but they make people think. And think, and they think, oh well, you know, Paul and so on. They've done such and such a thing. Well, yeah, okay, yeah. and it gets them thinking, you know, in a way. Mm. Um, so it opens up conversations in their head, even if not explicitly with with you. Mm. You're very kind yeah. in the way you talk about that, Paul. What? You're very kind. <laughs> you're, you're kind to these people. Do you not get frustrated sometimes? Um. Yes, obviously, yeah, you yeah. do. But what's the point of um, what's the point of feeling frustrated? I mean, they, um, there's that phrase, isn't there, about bitterness? I don't know what the phrase is. Um, can you remember the phrase? It's something about it's you know destructive. I guess it, it does absolutely nothing. Totally. Yeah, for yeah, you. yeah, yeah. It just has no effect, yeah. no positive effect whatsoever. Mm. There's no point to it. Except yeah. an internal satisfaction, pleasure of of being bitter, of feeling grievance. Yeah. Again, in psychotherapy, we call it nursing the grievance, and yeah. it's a very, very common phenomena that um, people have. It's one of the major causes of, um, I think, one of the main aspects of depression. You know, people in deep depression are very often nursing these kinds of grievances. Um, in a, yeah, in a very um, destructive kind of way. Mm. I think it's really, really important to think about how we approach people with these kind of hardened defences. Because I know that one of the things that's in the book that you recently had mm -hmm. published, Paul, is about the kind of the risk of burnout in climate activists mm. and climate scientists and people working in the profession. Mm. And I'm wondering if that kind of fits with what you were just saying there about the kind of the grievance... I think I was thinking more softer-ended frustration, but people who have kind of been devoted to working in this field for mm -hmm. many years and are just exhausted and mm -hmm. crashing and burning, what mm -hmm. do you think? Yeah, um, it's very difficult, you know, when you come out of disavowal, yeah. um, you're, you're then in this kind of fairly raw place where you're feeling maybe anger, grief, um, despair... Um, all sorts of very kind of powerful feelings. And and you've got to find a way of staying with those feelings. Yeah? And when we interviewed um, climate activists a few years ago, um, and scientists, you know, we called them the canaries, those two groups. Yeah. They're the ones, the early warning systems, so yeah. to speak. Um, we were really interested in what enabled them to stick at it rather than yeah. to burn out. And... Um, the metaphor that we came up with was um, uh, it's like um, living with a chronic illness, a chronic condition. Yeah. Trouble yeah. is, the chronic condition is the world, basically, yeah. and now you're having to live with it and live in it. 
Um, and how do you do that? Well, you can let it get you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be diabetes if we're talking about an individual. And you can let it get you down and become very depressed about it and feel aggrieved about it and feel bitter about it and, and so on and so forth. But that won't actually help you uh, live your life in any kind of fulfilling way. Um, or um, you can acknowledge that you've got this chronic condition. Yeah, You can put it on one side and get on with um, action, doing mm. things. Mm. Yeah, mm. Knowing that that's there and it's always going to fuel your action because that's what emotions do. That's what feelings do. They, they provide us with the motivation for our action. They provide that disturbance, don't they? Yeah. Without that, we'd never do anything sure. because we'd just be intellectually like I was 25 years ago thinking oh this is this is not very good but doing nothing about it okay because it hadn't it hadn't touched you it hadn't way. touched yeah. you yeah it hadn't disturbed you yeah mm. yeah so the disturbance is important absolutely yeah. yeah and you've got to stay with the disturbance and that's the difficult thing um, and that's why you know this ability to park it yeah. periodically up there uh, and just get on with your life is is what the activists and scientists seem to be able to do. Those mm. those that were sticking at it. Mm. So you're saying that's that's good. I think that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Right. And it's yeah. not about that's not the same as denial. Well, exactly. Yeah. No. So it's not being buried. You're or not in denial of your diabetes. Or, no. Yeah. No. It's just being kind of set aside. Yeah. Carry on, mm. and then come back to That's it right. well i guess that makes it part of your life rather than the whole of mm-hmm. your life doesn't it mm-hmm. because the other things stay important too mm. you know mm. uh, so it doesn't sort of overwhelm mm. Mm. okay mm. you mustn't let it destroy your love for the world right mm. still an amazing place mm. absolutely that's a really important point Caroline Hickman and Paul Hoggett, fellow psychotherapists and writers who are also core members of the Climate Psychology Alliance. I'm Verity Sharp, proud host of this podcast, which is produced by the CPA in association with Parity Audio. Join us again soon for more.